Want to see what life is like inside the bottle? Jen's Playground has its own Facebook page. The link to join is listed in the podcast show notes, which you can see only right here on mtgcast.com. Join today. We hope to see you nasty, degenerate bitches soon. What's up, sickos? Episode 17. Oh, I can already tell this is going to be a good one. Welcome to Jint's Playground, the podcast that brings tidal waves of Red Bull, where odds-defying raw dog top decks are the probable outcome. Mm, mm. Ah, you know what that is. That beautiful silver can of justice. We have a hell of a lot to go over on this show. We've got some magic stuff. We've got some news. We've got some soapbox stuff. We have a little introspective. Hell, we have a lot of shit on this show. I mean, that's that's kind of the nice thing about having your own podcast, right? You can pretty much talk about whatever the hell strikes you. That's my platform. I refuse to slow my roll. Whatever the gin wants to talk about at any given moment, that's what's going to happen. We're keeping it real. Life is good. We are currently in the thick of the Amsterdam qualifying season. Regionals has come and gone. Oh, excuse me. Nationals qualifying day. You know, at some point, you may have asked yourself, why the change from regionals to nationals qualifying day? I mean, don't look at me, man. I mean, I I haven't the slightest clue. My guess is Wizards hired some marketing suit, or maybe they transferred them over from Hasbro or whatever. And they probably never played the game before. You know, they came in and decided to change the name just for the hell of it. Now, a lot of people will say, you know, it's not a big deal that they changed the name. But notice when you ask why it had to change that no one can really give you a straight answer, or at least a good answer. So, until we get down to the bottom of this, we'll just have to chalk up the reason to shits and giggles. Now, I don't want you guys to get the wrong idea here. You know, I I think that some things deserve functional names, especially if that name, you know, has been around since the beginning of time. You know, those names shouldn't and probably won't change. You know, they're they're not going to rename, say, Pepsi. You know, they're not going to rename it to, like, Happy Party Time Soda. You know, they're not going to do that. Pepsi is Pepsi. But, there are other things that I think do deserve some creative names, more specifically, magic decks. Now, semi-recently, I uh, read an article by magic superstar Patrick Chapin, in which he wrote a few things that I completely and totally disagree with. Yeah, I know, it's extremely unpopular and looked down upon to disagree with what the pros have to say. You know, there I go, being one of those confounded independent thinkers... Now, I don't want to take anything out of context here, so I'm going to do a bit of quoting so that you all know exactly where he's coming from and where I'm coming from. Patrick writes, When LSV did well with blue-white-red control, 
Did he call it American control, USA control, American planeswalkers, or American anything? Think of the five or ten players you would put the most stock in. How many of them have you heard call blue, white, red, American anything? You don't want to be that guy. You know the guy. The guy who is more interested in coming up with a clever name than winning the tournament. The purpose of Magic Deck Names is to describe briefly and concisely as much useful information as possible. And he also goes on to write, All I am saying is that when someone sits down at a PTQ table, when they post a list in a forum, when they update their blog, or when they fill out their deck title of their deck list, when they write American Control, every non-amateur knows who the amateur is. Remember, Magic is a game where it is highly advantageous to quote-unquote be in the club despite the one-on-one -on -one battles, networking, teamwork, communication, sharing technology, and more are all important aspects of the larger game. Every tiny action one does that breaks etiquette is just one more thing that disconnects them from the community as a whole. Each individual action is generally not a big deal, but it is far more effective strategy to be mindful of the culture you are a part of. I mean, listen. I love me some Patrick Chapin. Who doesn't? You know, the man has written a book on magic. You know, he's one of the best magic internet writers out there. And he's actually playing really, really good magic so far this year. And truth be told, I agree with just about everything the man writes. You know, especially his card and deck analysis. His word and opinion reaches just about every card slinger's soul. Or at least it should. But doesn't this kind of strike you as a bit hoity-toity and a little condescending to the grand majority of the magic-playing populace? The purpose of magic deck names is to describe briefly and concisely as much useful information as possible. Really? Who says so? I mean, is there a, a, an Olympic committee that determines the acceptability of what goes into a magic deck name? I mean, is there a, a website that I have to go to to submit my deck list and my deck name in order to be approved by the Federal Bureau of Magic deck namers? I mean, who says people can't name their deck whatever the hell they want for the simplest of reasons? Because it's a game, you know, and it's fun to do. You know, God forbid you don't want to be that guy who's more interested in coming up with a clever name than winning the tournament. Yeah, that's not broad or anything. I mean, who's to say those players aren't just as focused, if not more focused, on winning the tournament than the humdrums who concede to writing a simple jund in the deck name of the box in the registration sheet? Now, let me ask all of you something. Who really wants to be in this club that Patrick is talking about, where the protocol dictates that you shouldn't have fun coming up with a creative name for your deck? And how on earth is naming a deck that you're playing a destructive breach in etiquette? You want a destructive breach in etiquette? How about laying a trail of methane on your way up to see the pairings? That, my friend, is a monumental breach in etiquette. By naming your deck, you aren't mindful of the magic culture and you're disconnecting yourself from your community. Really? How disconnected do you think Manuel Booker is from the magic community for naming his deck Quick and Toast? You think his club membership got revoked when he did that? Maybe I should check in with Conley Woods to see how life is like being on the outs from the magic elite for adopting such names as Bantwagon and Magical Christmas Land. I mean, Kowal named his deck Boat Brew. Um, Wakefield, he chimed in with Secret Force. You know, so at the core of it, it seems like maybe it's okay to name your deck, but it just depends on who's naming it. In a game where some of the most competitive decks in its history earn such names as Tricks, Pickles, Frog in a Blender, Full English Breakfast, and Fruity Pebbles, 
Well, they had to get these names somehow. Maybe we should form an oversight committee to keep the deck naming authorities in line and make sure that these offensive and silly names don't slip through the cracks. Now look, I, I can understand the argument in regards to the, the renaming of an already established deck. You know, for example, if someone takes a common stock list of Jund, changes one card, and then renames it something that isn't called Jund, well, you're really not fooling anyone, and it does make you look a little silly. However, people who, who come up with their own flavor, who brew up something new and fun, regardless if they do well with the deck or not, they shouldn't have to feel like they are not part of the magic community, or, or that they're breaking some sort of unwritten code just because they slapped a wacky name onto their creation. I mean, may maybe naming your own deck is vanity-driven, but so what? Who cares? I say, go nuts. I say, get creative. Screw the mundane. You're allowed. Come up with some of the most outlandish deck names that you can think of and own that shit. If for no other reason than to piss off Chapin when he's forced to say in his tournament reports, in round six I was paired up against a nice guy playing Sandra Bullock's Meatloaf Surprise. Kind of strange as that deck has only got a good game against green-black-white baboon vagina. He said that his only loss came from a nice chap playing sexual Zamboni. Now, I, I say this with all the sincerity that I can muster. Don't feel like you won't have a shot at being a part of some super elite clique just because you feel like you, you want to name your deck something silly. It's a far more harmless activity than Chapin really wants to admit. You know, if they won't have you in their clubhouse because you named your deck something they don't like, then chances are you, you don't want to be in that clubhouse anyway. And if you really want to throw a crazy name on your deck and are really concerned that your gaming community will make you a pariah, uh, rest easy knowing that you'll always have a home right here on Jin's Playground. Oh, and by the way, if you guys want to know the name of the deck I'm running at my next PTQ, I lovingly refer to it as Winona's Big Brown Beaver. Well, it's that time of the year again where everyone works on their standard chops in the effort to qualify for Pro Tour Red Light District. Alright, it's, it's Amsterdam, but you know what I mean. It's kind of weird this go-around because the vibe here in Denver is very different. You know, some people put mad stock into their regionals, and as well they should. But others, not so much. Now, I guess their reasoning is that uh, it's in direct conflict with... Uh, with the Star City Games 10K that's going to be held right here in Denver on the very same weekend in August. I guess the way they figure it, you know, if they qualify for Nats, they'll go to Minnesota, and if they don't, eh, they'll just stay here and play in the 10K that weekend. You know, if that option wasn't available, I think our Nats qualifier would have been a lot bigger than it was, you know, whereas in the past, people would travel to the National Championship even if they hadn't qualified, you know, just to try and grind in or uh, play in the cool side events there. I guess it's tough to blame the, the local players considering that they'll, you know, they'll have a pretty nice alternative right here in their own backyard, and it'll probably save them a few hundred that, uh, you know, they would have spent on hotel, airfare, food, drinks, you know, strip clubs. So far here in Denver, we've had two major standard tournaments, you know, our first PTQ of the season and the national qualifier. You know, one idea I've had to try and spotlight uh, the local players here in Denver was to, you know, list the top eight deck lists uh, from the recent big events and talk about each one of them here. And if you look in the show notes of this podcast, you'll see that I've listed a, 
the recent PTQ Top 8 decklist for all of you to gaze upon while I blather on about them. I didn't list the Top 8 National Qualifier decks because those guys are a bunch of luck sacks. Just kidding. Uh, I'll probably go over those deck lists in the next podcast before our next PTQ. I think what made each of these decks so unique was that uh, we're, we're currently in the midst of a major metagame shift. You know, most of you know that uh, for the last few months, Jund was the you know it was kind of the king of the castle, uh, but now we have some very interesting results coming in stating otherwise. You know, our first PTQ here in Denver had 150 odd souls participating, and you'll notice one very interesting thing: no Jund lists. Not a single Savage Land to be found. And it's not to say that Jund has lost its clout. Uh, it's still a badass deck to be reckoned with. You know, Washington, D.C. proved that. Uh, it's just nice that uh, at least Jund has to share the room with some other Tier 1 decks from now on. You know, being from Denver, uh, I know most of the people in this Top 8, and I can tell you, uh, that this was a very stacked top eight. You know, nobody was getting an easy flight to the Netherlands. So let's take a look at these deck lists together. Uh, or if you just want another website to view these lists from, uh, head on over to FrontRangeMagic.com and click on the top eight link uh, to, to check them out there. But let's start with the winner. Uh, big winner, Tom Ma. Uh, he ran a Grixis control deck. As you can see, he went 6-1-1 one, and one and placed 8th in the Swiss, just barely making it in. Now, I went with a Grixis control list as well at the PTQ, but it was quite a bit different from Tom's list. Uh, I ran only two creatures with Sphinx of Dwar Isle and ran a more reactive build with Negates, Planeswalkers, and 4 Cruel Ultimatum. As you can see here, Tom's build is much more proactive, uh, playing early threats like Sidrax's Spectre to get in there with cheap beats while casting Blightning, um, both of which offer painful ways to make his opponents pitch cards into the bin. Uh, Siege Gang Commander is also interesting and can help shore up the aggro matches as well as provide a legitimate threat against the control-oriented decks. I really like this deck, uh, if, if for no other reason than it's greedy as all get-out. I mean, it, here you have a, a deck running both Blightning and Jace in the same deck, uh, along with Cruel Ultimatum. Uh, you can pretty much guarantee that whatever spells he was going to cast were probably spells that his opponents hated. Having a deck that runs both Spreading Seas and Goblin Rune Blasters has the capability of just sealing the deal against Jund strategies. Hell, against a lot of strategies. This deck is all about aggressive disruption and control, although I would personally enjoy having access to duress somewhere on the board considering how popular the Planeswalker control decks are becoming. Overall though, I think this is a very tight build. I wouldn't, uh, it, it, do, it actually doesn't really surprise me at all that Tom, who's uh, a really solid player in his own right, got himself an envelope with the deck. But moving right along to the second place deck, you see Tom Carmody. Uh, who placed 6th overall in the Swiss, 2nd uh, place at a 6-1-1 one, one record. There are a, a couple of worthwhile differences from this blue-white control and your garden-variety blue-white tap-out control. 
Uh, Carmody elected not to go with the Knight of the White Orchid Border Post Baneslayer package and instead went with three Sphinx and put more emphasis on the actual cards he'd need to ensure board control. I think this deck is pretty solid, although I can see tiny little changes that I might personally make. I, I would, wouldn't really have an issue going up to uh, three Negate, especially now with all the Planeswalker decks making the surge in popularity. I also want access to four core Firewalker in the board and not three, especially since there are no white uh, Knight of the White Orchids in this uh, in this particular build. I just have that much respect for the new devastating red deck that uh, has recently surged in popularity. I mean, I, and the other thing too is I, I love Gideon too much to to just run a two of, and with more and more decks running Gideon. Uh, I can see him being a permanent three of, and who knows? I mean, we could see a day when, you know, running four is the norm uh, to the chagrin of everyone's pocketbooks. But overall, I think this is a really solid deck. Uh, third place is Jeff Randall. He also went six one and one, fifth overall in the Swiss. Um, this is Turbo Fog. I, I'll be honest with you. I, I'm not a big fan of this strategy. Uh, I guess if he was of the mindset that Jun was going to be the big deck on the day, then I can't blame him. It just seems like he's tempting the fates against decks with, you know, like Devastating Red, uh, or, or any deck that runs the Mythic Eldrazi's. Now, I watched an instance uh, where another Turbo Fog uh, had to tap out to safe passage to prevent se a 7 point attack from a Red deck, and on the second main phase, Red slammed home a Mana Barbs. And that was game over for the Turbo Fog deck. And I'm not saying this to take anything away from Jeff's finish. I just think that um, he'd have to have some pretty favorable matchups to make it as far as he did. Fourth place overall, Gerald Class Jerry, notched seventh overall in the Swiss six one and one. You know, as much as I love Jerry, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this deck because it was. Uh, Really just your standard issue blue-white tap-out control. Although I do like the two main board Sphinx of Jwar Isle. What I will say is that this particular deck had a ton of Japanese cards in it. And it made it look really, really cool. Fifth place overall uh, was Brett Piazza. He finished first in the Swiss at a 7-0-1 undefeated day. Um... Some of you may recognize the name Brett Piazza. He's one of Colorado's best players, and more often than not, he's day twoing Grand Prix, and on occasion, he top eights those Grand Prix. He went undefeated in the Swiss with this Open the Vaults Time Sieve deck at the PTQ and finished first place in the Swiss. Uh, you know, I, I think that the majority of Colorado passed off the Open the Vaults strategies as kind of like a you know a fringe deck, much to the delight of Brett. Um, I playtested this deck, and it's very complex, but if you can become automatic with it and completely understand the functionality of the deck, it's really an unstoppable force. Um, I'd warn you before sleeving this deck up for competition, Brett really knows how to play most of his decks. Um, I, I think in order to pilot such a deck, it's going to require a lot of testing, a lot of questioning, and a lot of patience, and a ton of skill. You know, if you have all of that, or <laughs> if you think you have all of that, uh, then it's a deck that I think could definitely win a Pro Tour qualifier. 
Let's see, sixth place, Daniel Bragg, seven and one overall, second in the Swiss. Danny Bragg packing the heat. Yeah, I can't say I'm totally surprised, but but had I bet someone what what he was going to play, I would have thought he'd run some sort of blue white strategy for sure. Uh, glad I didn't make that bet. I asked him how many turn four kills he had, and he said a lot. Uh, Bragg is one of the Colorado's elite players, and if if he felt this deck could get him there, then it's it's all but confirmed that Devastating Red is a legit archetype and a uh, tier 1 deck that must be respected and planned for. This deck has the capability of flat out killing on turn 3. I've seen it happen. There is one oddity, and that's the absence of mana barbs in the board. Uh, I, I think that that card does one, just 100% deserves a place within the 15 to continue to add pressure when faced against those control matchups. I have no idea what the Shatter are in there for, but I would likely get rid of the Shatter and um, and get the get the Mana Barbs back in there. Gabriel Zach Willman, 7th place, 7-1, 3rd in the Swiss. Uh, Zach, 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 packing Devastating Red 2. Uh, however, you can see that this build is just slightly different from uh, from Daniel Bragg's, as he's running three main deck Kiln Fiend, which I think could be really, really hot. I actually like that addition better than Bragg's Ball Lightnings. Um, at the time, I, I didn't really like uh, the Dragon's Claws on the board, as there wasn't a, a whole lot of red at this PTQ. Just seemed like it was a wasted slot in the board, but when speaking in terms of the future PTQs, Dragon's Claw almost seems like a must due to this deck's recent finishes and its inevitable surge in popularity. There will be a lot more red running around there than there was before. And last but not least, Dan Vigil pilots another blue-white control deck uh, that is actually a bit similar to Carmody's build. Personally, though, I think Deprive is just an okay card in this deck and could probably be taken out for more Planeswalkers or, or hell, even Negate. Um, I see Gideon and Elspeth in here as a... Uh, an Elspeth is a one-of and a Gideon is a one-of. And I just, I, don't know, I just think they're too good in this kind of deck to only pack uh, one of them in here. I don't know, he may have only owned one uh, of each. I, I doubt it, but... That, that's that's his deck list. Uh, I mean, this deck also really doesn't have too many issues with creatures, and I think Negate just serves as an overall better counter in this deck than Deprive. Uh, you know, sure, bouncing Adepts or a Refuge is neat, but Negate or a, or a Gideon just seems more neat. <laughs> One thing I love about this deck is the Sea Beyond. I mean, that card is bananas. Uh, I, I played four in my deck at the PTQ, and I was never disappointed to see it, and loved casting it. Again, I'd probably up the core Firewalker count from three to four. Um, probably four. <laughs> uh, take the random one of Devout Lightcaster out of there, please. Just get that out of there. And, uh, and I do like some Celestial Purge out of the board against Red. This deck cannot afford to have a Mana Barbs played on it, and the Purge is a great answer. So there you have it, Denver's PTQ results. If you're out there getting ready for your own PTQ, uh, here's the gauntlet that I would have put together to test against. 
First up, build Owen Turdenwald's Jund list from Grand Prix DC. Uh, you know, just because there are other options out there now doesn't mean that you can afford to sleep on Jund. Uh, if you're brewing, this is the first deck that you want to test against um, before moving on to another matchup. It just it needs to be planned for. Uh, I'd also include Jerry Thompson's Vengevine Naya. Uh, you know, that's another deck to plan for. You should also have a solid blue-white control list. Brad Nelson's Grand Prix winning deck is pretty damn tight, so I'd probably use that list. You should probably put together a Super Friends list, uh, a.k.a. American Patriot USA Commando Delta Squadron of Danger and Justice. You know the list. A few other decks to include would be Open the Vaults, Time Sieve, Devastating Red, uh, Mythic Conscription, and uh, a good Polymorph strategy. Wesco's got a good one. You know, and I know it sounds like a lot of decks for a gauntlet, but Standard is a fairly, fairly healthy format right now, and these are legitimate options that you could very well run into at your PTQ. And I know that uh, this has been talked about before, but you don't have to actually build these decks in order to play against them in testing. Just grab a Sharpie and some commons and start testing now. You know, the important thing is the repetitions in an effort to get familiar with each deck's functional strengths and weaknesses. If you can't actually build it, just proxy it and you're good to go. So, this last PTQ that I played in... Uh, I did not do so hot. And there are a few reasons for this. I have a, uh, a do's and don'ts checklist that I try to adhere to when it comes to playing in a, a major day-long tournament. And I think I did everything on the don't column of the list. For starters, uh, in the weeks leading up to the PTQ... I spent a good deal of time attempting to come up with a deck, you know, a completely original brew of my own uh, that would have a great game against the bulk of the field. You know, I spent a lot of time thinking about this deck, more time than, uh, than I can recall ever spending on any deck. Uh, as the, the likely metagame started to take shape, my worst fears came true, the deck that I planned on running... Uh, the deck that I worked on for days on end uh, was just getting taken to the woodshed uh, by the decks that we had anticipated would be there at the PTQ. Which of course led me to, to scrambling, you know, uh, to, to coming up with a, you know, something to pilot in the days leading up to the event. You know, I have the resources to run almost any deck I want, and in the end, after all was said and done... Uh, I settled on a deck that I had played only a couple games with. You know, the deck list was fine. Um, it, you know, it had a great strategy for every imaginable matchup. The problem was, I, I wasn't fine. You know, mentally, I wasn't prepared to win an envelope. You know, seeing the remnants of my Jin's original deck sitting in my deck box just served as this frustrating and discouraging reminder that I had failed in building this deck that uh, I really hoped to be playing. And I just, uh, you know, I let it get to me. 
Now fast forward to the night before the PTQ. And, you know, here here we all are, 2 a.m. in the morning, and we're building our decks, you know, trying to figure out what should go into them. And, and here I am, knowing that I'm going to play a deck that I'm not terribly familiar with, while haunted with the knowledge that I'll, I'll be trying to be competitive on only four to five hours of broken sleep. You know, I, uh, <laughs> I love me some Red Bull, but it, it's just too much to ask of that beverage to carry my ass through the entirety of a PTQ. Sure enough, I ran into some extremely bad luck in the uh, first two rounds of competition, and there went my chance for Amsterdam. Just like that. You know, I was completely out of the running, but, you know, I stuck it out. You know, what else was I going to do? You know, I learned a lot about the deck I was running. Granted, learning about your deck during the actual event is not exactly optimal. Overall, you know, not my best day. I read uh, somewhere that the makeup of a champion isn't how he handles winning, but how he handles defeat. And after some reflection, I can't beat myself up over not running a deck that would have likely net me some pretty disappointing results, You know, no matter how much juice I put into it. On the other hand, it's perplexing because you know, we'd think that after making the same mistake over and over again, we'd stop making that mistake when it comes to finding ourselves piecing together our decks on the eve of an event. You know, perhaps old habits die hard, but I don't believe that this is an unavoidable fate. You know, ultimately, I think if you don't set aside time to build and playtest the deck that you're planning on winning a PTQ with, then I, I think that you have, you have to set some very reasonable expectations that may include not winning that PTQ. You know, if, if you're planning on competing for an envelope in the near future, learn what your deck is, is, is going to be now. You know, learn, learn the contents of it. Don't wait until the 11th hour. Learn what it is right now. Know the deck. Understand how it plays, how it sideboards, and, uh, and most importantly, how it's going to win a PTQ for you. Alrighty, well, that was, that was kind of deep. So, uh, this weekend I was looking at the, uh, the internet and going over to the mothership and couldn't help but notice that, uh, Pro Tour San Juan was happening. Actually, I, I knew that Pro Tour San Juan was happening. Uh, I've got a lot of friends over there that are playing right now, and, uh, as it stands, it is in the books, and, uh, DDR is the Pro Tour champion. You know, he's actually, he's easily one of my favorite pros playing today, and I'm really happy for him that he's locked down this title. Now, back in 2008, I had read DDR's very detailed tournament report where he placed in the top four of a Grand Prix with fairies. I don't really recall which Grand Prix it was, but it was written with so much detail and care that, uh, that after reading it, it felt like his fairies deck was not only the best deck in the format, but the deck for me to win a regionals title with. And sure enough, after a bunch of repetitions, nine rounds later, and on my own birthday, no less, uh, I grabbed the title and was headed to Chicago for nationals. But I, I 
can't say that I would have made it had I not read DDR's article. And his success inspired my own success. So yeah, huge kudos to, uh, to DDR. This guy is definitely a champ in my book. So I, uh, I can't tell you. <laughs> I can't tell you how many times I get this. Wow, your voice is killer. You should be in radio. I also get this question. Who, who do you like to listen to? Well, on the Fridays where there is a huge event like a Pro Tour or a Nationals or Worlds, one of the things I like to do, and I usually have to do this from work during the day, is tune in tune into uh, Rich Hagen's podcasts uh, on the Mothership. I could listen to this man all day, especially when he's, you know, trying to peek in on the matches themselves, as if you know he has to whisper so the players don't hear him. And we have Brandon Shield attacking with Ranger of Eos and Vengevine, as it were. <laughs> this guy is the deal. So San Juan um, was block constructed and uh, Rise of Eldrazi draft. So let, let me ask you guys something. How useless is the block constructed format? I mean, it seems like Wizards just treats this format as an afterthought. And I know that the majority of the players could care less about this format. And, and the only reason why the pros care about it is because there's one event that they have to play in where the format is block. You know, with no more block qualifying season, I just I just have no interest in seeing any block lists or, or seeing what pros did to work out what they felt was going to win them their event. You know, after San Juan, uh, uh, that information, it's just, it's almost irrelevant. I mean, instead of hearing about block ideas, I'd much rather hear about the nightlife in San Juan. You know, it sounds infinitely more interesting and useful. You know, for whenever I decide to visit San Juan. Because there's a higher likelihood that I'll do that than play Zendikar Block Constructed, that's for sure. One trend that I've noticed lately that I just can't get over. Listening to Rich's podcast, I've come to notice how today's pros have taken their self-deprecating ways to an almost annoying level. Like, I understand the values of modesty, but this is ridiculous. You know, he'd be like, well, we're here with pro magic player XYZ. How are you doing today? Well, as good as a sub-average player like myself can be, I guess. Thanks for asking. Oh, wow, that, that's too bad. You know, uh, how do you like your chances today? Well, I'd be surprised if I didn't finish dead last. You know, I'm, I'm not as good as anyone else here, and, and my deck is pretty bad. Go ahead, pick someone. Anyone. Uh, okay, how about him? Yep, now nah, he's, he's totally better than me. My goodness, well, what deck are you planning on playing today, then? Um, I'm playing the fourth worst deck in the format. Oh, so it, it's not a great deck, then. <sighs> there are no great decks. Just varying degrees of horrible decks. Well, uh, uh, good, good luck today. Now, this conversation sounds like an exaggeration, but it's closer to the mark than you might think. You know, it'll, it'll never happen, ever, but I just wish one of these days, you know, one of these guys would just step up in an interview and, and be like, well, we're here with Pro Magic Player XYZ. How are you today? I am fine and dandy, sweet as candy. I'm a white-hot ball of deep-fried awesome. How are you? Wow, that, that, that's fantastic. I'm, I'm great. So, 
Tell me, how, how do you like your chances today? Well, I'm going to start each match I play in by apologizing to my opponent in advance for the unbelievable ass-whooping that they're about to receive. You know, it's, it's not their fault that they got paired against me. It's just bad luck. Today is not the day to play against me. My, oh my, you, you are a, just simply brimming with confidence today. I can't wait to see your deck and, and what you're playing today. That'll be $5. Um, excuse me, what? The cost is $5. That's how much I'm charging people for the privilege to watch me play my deck today. I know, you know, what you're saying to yourself. I, I'll gladly pay $20 to watch me play, but I'm feeling generous, and you're a buddy of mine, so ship me the 5 and we'll call it good. Uh, well, I, I, I don't have any money on me right now. I mean, it's up in the hotel room. Uh, you know what? Hey, you can hit me back later. I know you're good for it. Somebody, I don't care which pro out there, step up to the plate and grow some personality. Now, I would say that I'm the man for the job, but uh, <laughs> I suck at magic and I play crappy decks. The sweet, sweet irony. Alright, time for some magic news and community calendar. Just a fancy way of saying, what the hell is going on? So get your calendar out, or your iPhone, or whatever you use, and mark these dates down. The next qualifier for Amsterdam here in Colorado is Saturday, June 19th at the American Inn. Uh, the format is standard, of course. Feel free to hit up uh, frontrangemagic.com for more details on that event. July 10th and 11th are big days, as that marks the M11 pre-release. That's going to be pretty big, as uh, we'll have artist RK Post in attendance. Now, he's done artwork for a ton of magic cards, uh, such as Fulminator Mage, Icarid, Lightning Angel, Tide Hollow Sculler, and my favorite of the bunch, the man is responsible for the artwork of Morphling. It'll be great to have him join us that weekend. The big news, the news that uh, we've been keeping under wraps for the last few weeks, is that we have a very special gunslinger coming out to play with us during the M11 pre-release. None other than the man who goes by those three little letters, L.S.V. Arguably the greatest Magic player playing in the game today. Uh, he will be coming out to Colorado to sling the cards with the rest of us that weekend. Do not miss your opportunity to play with one of the best players of our game. Uh, and Personally, I'm just looking forward to hanging out with him, picking his brain, and, and just showing him around our town. Now, I do have one more announcement, and uh, this one not only applies to the local players, but uh, applies to anyone in the United States who is considering coming out to Denver to play in the Star City Games 10K uh, on August 21st through 22nd. The weekend before, on Saturday, August 14th, Front Range Magic is holding a very, very special event. Uh, it's a cash tournament event that we like to call the Front Range Magic Team Challenge 3. This is the third time we've held this event, and it's proven to be an extremely popular tournament. Uh, I love it, too. Uh, there, there's just something special about Team Magic that fires up the competitive juices. Some of you heard me talk about this event in the past, but uh, 
Some others may need a reminder of what this tournament is all about. This is an open tournament that anyone can play in as a single competitor, i.e. you don't need a team to play. Uh, if you enter as a single competitor, you're competing for the individual cash prizes of that tournament. Uh, if you have four of you, you can pay an additional team fee. It's like an extra $5 per person per team. Um, and then play in the Swiss portion as a team where team points are earned throughout the Swiss tournament. At the end of the tournament, the top two highest scoring teams will face off in the top eight of a team draft to determine the winner as well as determine the first and second place team cash prizes. This tournament is extremely unique and very, very cool. It is an unsanctioned event for several reasons, but the biggest reason is to configure it so that teammates don't play each other. However, it is judged at a competitive rel uh, by our very own level 3 and level 4 judges. This is nice because uh, you know it'll allow you to start off 0-2, uh, uh, but if you but you can keep going uh, to help your team's overall score getting wins along the way without worrying about damaging your rating if you happen to suck it up. It's also one of the only large competitive tournaments where the top tables are actually playing it out instead of watching all of those intentional draw handshakes. I mean, they have to play to get the most points for their team. Usually, it's like an eight-round tournament, and playing eight rounds is outstanding practice for those going to nationals the following week. But it's also great practice for that, S, you know, for that Star City Games 10K happening here locally. So if you do decide that this sounds like a good time, and you get a carload of four to come down and team it up with us that weekend... Uh, look me up when you get in. Uh, it's being held at a Holiday Inn off of I-70 and Pecos Boulevard. If you want to stay in a room there, I can hook you up with a decent event discount. Uh, keep your eye on FrontRangeMagic.com for more details on this tournament. I am very much looking forward to this one. My team placed third overall in the first one, and first overall in the second one. I haven't quite decided who's going to be on my team this go-round, but uh, it's going to be epic, whoever it is. Alright, it's time to wrap things up for this edition of the Playground. If you feel inclined, uh, leave some feedback in the comments section of the show on MTG Cast. Any questions, ship them to gintastic at gmail.com or, uh, or join the Facebook page if, uh, if you've got a Facebook account. If you're in the area and you want to play test or just hang out, you can usually find me at a little place called Enchanted Grounds on Friday nights and sometimes Saturdays. Hopefully we'll see you. Until next time, this is the Immortal Jin signing off saying peace, love, and tacos. Did I mention that Jin's Playground has its own Facebook page? The link to join is listed in the podcast show notes, which you can see only right here on mtgcast.com. Join today. And yes, I am indeed a naughty temptress that demands a firm spanking. <laughs>